This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. We also spotlight recent news and bring you different voices from the CEA team. Our featured discussion on this podcast is with Jim Robb, the President and CEO of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, known as NERC. But before we get to that discussion, Michael Powell, Government Relations Director here at CEA, once again joins me to talk about recent news that caught his eye. So what's news, Michael? Well, let's start down in Texas. Uh, Austin is keeping things weird by looking ahead to using vehicles to help electric vehicles to push uh, power into the grid. There's a partnership between a company called uh, Pecan Street, as well as Austin Energy, which is a, a, a city-owned utility that is doing some grid testing with a proof of concept with a 2018 Nissan Leaf to see if they can have it switch on and power the grid at uh, high demand times. So this is the, the theory that people had had long ago that, well, not long ago, but uh, but to use uh, electric vehicles as storage on the system. Well, at the end of the day, an electric vehicle is just a battery on yeah. wheels. And what uh, the two companies, again, including a, a local utility, have been doing for a number of years is trying to build these new grid solutions, which includes home storage. But this is the first time they're looking at, uh, as a proof of concept, they're not really looking for uh, you know, high demand stuff right now. It's one vehicle for the time being. What could be used from that? And they're doing a lot of thought, like how much can you draw from the battery? How much <laughs> should you leave to make sure that when someone goes to get in their car, they have enough juice to get somewhere where they want to go. But with the project, they uh, figured that with just one of these vehicles, there's enough to power enough energy to power five homes for one hour. Wow. That's okay. a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. And so, so the discussions that we've been having about the ability in the future to really be able to unlock solar and wind and, and, uh, and other non-dispatchable renewables is going to be all about storage, but maybe the storage solution will be in vehicles. Well, if people are moving to electric vehicles, maybe more, more people will have batteries. It's just a question of how we use them and, and what the flow is like. Okay. The, uh, we're, we're going to head up north for the other one. Natural Resources Canada last week announced a new initiative to help get Indigenous communities off of diesel. Obviously, when you are an exceptionally remote community, as many in Canada's north are, without regular access to roads or the sorts of large populations that might merit having uh, regular connections to the North American grid, there's a heavy reliance on diesel. The $20 million program will see uh, 15 communities selected by a, a jury of Indigenous people to help develop a community energy plan, which will lead towards moving off of diesel and, and creating jobs. Each town could get as much as $1.3 million. So the challenge is, of course, in those remote communities, in addition to the difficulty of getting diesel to the communities, mm -hmm. is, of course, the environmental impacts, the health impacts, and so on, of, of having large amounts of diesel in the community and, and burning diesel? Well, we take, uh, exactly. I think we take for granted that uh, electricity is available, that when we want to open a new business or turn on the lights or power uh, our heaters or, well, I guess, less air conditioners up there, mm -hmm. that, that electricity is there. But in Canada's north, diesel is, is the way that it is, and uh, anything that can be done to help push people away from that saves costs for the people up there. It has to be shipped uh, or and sometimes flown in, mm -hmm. and also helps uh, solve some of our larger climate issues, but as well as the local health impacts from, as right. well. And so the project is... 
supported by Natural Resources Canada. Natural Resources the, Canada. Yeah, the government money uh, helping uh, remote Indigenous communities. So from deep in the heart of Texas to the Canadian North. We're doing the full uh, full range of North America today. Great. Mike, th- thanks for that. Um, I, I look forward to what tidbits you'll be bringing to the discussion next time we sit down. Now, on to our featured discussion. Uh, it's my discussion with the president and CEO of NERC, Jim Robb. Welcome, Jim Rob, to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Francis. So, Jim, I thought I'd start just as a bit of a warm-up to ask you about what you're reading. So, uh, it's not about electricity uh-huh. at all. Uh, I'm a uh, big uh, fan and have a lot of interest in World War II. Okay. And right now, I'm working my way through Omar Bradley's uh, memoir, as a Soldier's Story. And one of the things that I am really intrigued by is in the middle part of the 20th century, we had these just incredibly hideous men, right, demagogues that uh, were seizing power all over the world. And then a bunch of people uh, from unusual places kind of stood up, mm-hmm. right, and, and really made a difference to how the, the world evolved. And uh, what I like about Bradley, it, well, one, the, the book's a lot about him, but there's a lot about Patton in there. And you couldn't have two more disparate personalities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's just this kind of you know ordinary people thrown into extraordinary times mm-hmm. and rising to an occasion and uh, inspiring so many people, uh, some through positional authority and some through not. And I, I I'm just very fascinated by uh, again by the the personalities of the day and, and 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 importantly how fortunate we are as a world, yeah. right? That people did rise to an occasion because uh, there's so many. Uh, so many opportunities in that event where things could have gone differently mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all along the way. Yeah. And uh, it's one of my uh, uh, pet fascinations. Terrific. Speaking of books, if um, somebody wanted to, uh, to read a book that would help them understand uh, our business, the electricity business, and the future of electricity, is there, is there something that comes to mind for you? No, not really. Um, nobody's, I have, nobody's written that definitive Vision well, of the future yet, right? Well, I, I don't think it, it lends itself to a book in my mind. Now, I know a lot of people have written books around their views of the future and so forth, but I haven't found anyone to be particularly insightful. I mean, if anything, I like the uh, work that uh, Ernie Moniz and MIT have oh, yeah. done mm-hmm. around the, the future of natural gas and the future of electricity because it's grounded in some science as opposed to philosophy or, or, or politics or so forth. Right. But um, but mostly, I think, you know, to understand where the industry is going, you have to just stay attuned to what's going on in technology mm-hmm. and kind of fast forward to well, how would that affect us right. in the sector. And, of course, right now we're in a period of time where the technology change is happening so rapidly. And I would guess over the next 10 years we'll see amazing breakthroughs in technology particularly on the storage side, mm-hmm. that'll completely transform how we even think about this business. Well, and then maybe let's take that as a, a jumping off point. Sure. If um, technology, being attuned to technology uh, as, as you are, I know you're, you're somebody that, that follows this a lot, cast your mind forward uh, to, say, 2030 or, or, or 2040. Um, how, 
different is uh, our electricity system going to be? And how different is the grid likely to be by then when we're going decades into the future? Uh, it could be substantially different uh -huh. than what we've grown up with. Because what we grew up with was a system that was designed under completely different pretenses. So uh, the grid that we have was designed originally around kind of coal and oil, uh, later nuclear, uh, and, uh, and load, which was mainly metal bending, you know, manufacturing. Right. And, uh, and, and so all of our rules of thumb and, and things we keep in our head mm -hmm. is all kind of based on that kind of fundamental view of the world. And, you know, that's not the world we live in anymore. Right. right? We're, we're living in a world where generation is going to come mostly from uh, renewable resources, mm -hmm. and this is where we're headed, mm -hmm. um, or just-in-time resources. I think one of the... Or both at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the big questions out there, and we can talk about this more later, is uh, what role natural gas plays mm -hmm. 20, 30, 40 years into the future. Yeah. Um, but the, but the, the generation is going to be based on fuel that's available when it's there and not when it's not. Mm -hmm. um, load will become more stochastic as well um, uh, and will be changing with... Uh, Pursuit of electrification, uh, particularly of transportation, had profound impacts on uh, what the load curve would look like. And uh, we have to figure out over the next period of time how to marry an uncertain load with an uncertain resource mix. Mm -hmm. And that's very different than how we think about the system today. Because right. we think about the system today, we still think about the system today as a, a Base load, mid merit, peaking array that yep. I put together to serve a load that I got a pretty good idea of what it's going to be like. Right, and a unidirectional uh, process from exactly from, uh, upstream to downstream to e the end customer. E exactly, and uh, and that's not where we're headed. Yeah, and uh, so that's going to force us to uh, really rethink a lot of the policies that we have around. You know, how should we think about reserve margins mm -hmm. in that world? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we think about energy security as opposed to just capacity right. uh, value. Um, how do we model load? Um, lots of very interesting challenges here as we move to what I guess would be electric grid 3.0. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So uh, so I think it's, it will look fundamentally different. And of course, the big wild card and all that is uh, uh, where battery technology right. goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, I suspect we will over the course of the next 10 years see some major changes in, uh, in uh, uh, on-site storage of electricity, mm -hmm. uh, given the emphasis that uh, uh, regimes like California have placed on batteries. Right. That will drive a substantial amount of investment in technology. And, you know, I can't, I'm not a futurist, but I would bet that in 10 years we'll laugh uh, about the fact that we thought that lithium-ion batteries were the <laughs> we're we're, we're going to save this industry because sure. I, I think it'll be a different technology that yeah. hasn't been invented yet. Right. So it's not 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 yet invented, or certainly not yet uh, in the field. Or we're, we're not yet commercialized. Yeah. So you you'd mentioned uh, distributed energy resources. So how much is that going to change the face of the overall system, and how much is it going to change how the bulk power system, which right. is, which is kind of where your your wheelhouse is, how how much is our distributed energy resources in the future going to change that whole construct? Uh, profoundly. Um, and uh, one of the things that I think we're going to have to, well, first of all, I think the uh, it's clear that um, the cost effectiveness of solar, uh, solar panels, which are the, probably the most easily deployed at, on, a, on a residential scale, yeah. for example, uh, and commercial, uh, on commercial buildings, 
that that trend is going to continue. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we see jurisdictions that you don't think of as having great solar potential really pushing these, like Massachusetts, mm -hmm. for example. Right. Uh, so I think we're going to see more and more uh, distributed resources on the system. Uh, and our issue right now is that we have no visibility okay. into that generation. They, they're always treated as a deduction to load yeah. as opposed to a resource on the system. Yeah. And uh, that creates quite an interesting planning conundrum because we don't really know what load is anymore because there's not good data on how many solar panels are out there. And, of course, any one isn't a big deal. But as we heard this morning from Southern California Edison, where they have, they believe, 2.6 gigawatts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a nuclear plant, yeah. uh, a nuclear yeah. plant and a half. Right. Um, and that's going to continue. The, the rate at which we see solar added in places like California, mm -hmm. in uh, Arizona, mm -hmm. and, and you know, solar-rich environments continues to grow at, uh, a very rapid pace with really not much end in sight. In so, so what's it going to take to be able to, to get visibility on that and then and then be able to use that in system planning and dispatch? Because we're a, we're a long way from there, aren't we? Uh, we are. We, we are. And uh, you know, one of the questions that I get asked is whether or not we can't create more visibility into how much is out there. Mm -hmm. we, even if we can't control it, uh, which we probably won't be able to. It probably won't be cost-effective to put controls on residential solar plants and so forth. But at least knowing what's there, because the, the, the issue that we're starting to see, and we saw this with one of the California fires uh, a couple years ago, when there was a perturbation on the system that caused a lot of solar generation to trip offline, Right. My understanding is we also saw a concomitant substantial increase in load, mm -hmm. right, which meant that the residential panels were also tripping off. Gotcha. So it creates a double whammy on the system, right? You lose a bunch of generation. Uh, at the same time, you also get a bunch of load back on the system. And the issue that that creates is you need something to plug that gap. Mm -hmm. And right now we do that through natural gas, yeah. um, you know, very rapid uh, ramp rate natural gas. Mm -hmm. In the future, that could be attenuated through batteries mm -hmm. um, or some sort of storage technology. But we're talking incredibly large scales. Yeah. I mean, we're talking, you know, gigawatts, not right. not megawatts right. of uh, of capacity. So, what does that tell you about the the future of natural gas? You mentioned that earlier. Well, this is, I think, one of the big uncertainties in the in the system, and and I agree uh, with many people who want to characterize natural gas as a bridge fuel okay. from where we are today to a future we want to get to. Mm -hmm. I think the conundrum that we're in is uh, people have very different views as to what the length of that bridge is. I think a lot of people would like that to be viewed as a creek crossing mm -hmm. and something that we'll be able to dispense with very shortly. <laughs> right. My view is it's going to look more like the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, right? It's going to be a long time. Um, or at least until a uh, battery technology emerges that can be deployed cost-effectively at very large scale. Right. Um, I think until then, we need a balancing resource, and natural gas is perfect, mm -hmm. uh, perfect for that. The uh, uh, you know, challenge, uh, of course, is that when you invest in infrastructure, right, you need to recover it over a very long period of time. Yeah. And so this question of you know, whether you're building a new gas pipeline, uh, a gas storage facility, the issue of whether it's going to be needed for 10 years or 40 years right. becomes really very fundamental to the, uh, yeah. to the regulatory decision around it. So it, it pre presents some real quandaries. 
my personal view is I think we're going to have gas in the system for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, maybe not forever, but I don't really see us losing our uh, reliance on gas as the balancing fuel to ensure reliability um, anytime real soon. Right. So if we, but if we cast our mind out to those long-term predictions, 2050 and beyond, is that where we're maybe getting into the place where natural gas may be starting to, to tail off, depending upon what other technologies come in? Well, I think it, that's the question. It's it, got to be that. It, it, it but it's going to be that far. Uh, it, well. It depends on your view of when batteries become deployable at large scale. Right. And uh, if there's a technology that can be that's cost effective and scalable, mm -hmm. then our reliance on gas would be much shorter. But you know, we don't. I don't believe we have that technology today. Right. So, um, so it's really a, a, a question around what you believe about the progression of battery tech. In my mind, it's what you believe about the progression of battery technology. Okay. Let's talk about what you believe about electrification and, and what the future of electrification will be and its potential impact on North American grids. There's been a lot of talk about electrification lately. How do you see that working its way through? So I, I think, you know, if you're a, uh, a believer uh, in the, in the uh, policy regime that we need to decarbonize the economy, mm -hmm. electrification is the best way to do that. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we have, uh, I've, I've owned an electric vehicle, mm -hmm. and that's probably one of the biggest opportunities right. uh, to, to electrify transportation. Uh, electric vehicles are wonderful. Uh, they're not perfect. Right. Um, so uh, you may never get to the point where uh, we don't have some fossil fuel uh, transportation. But, um, but I believe that there's tremendous potential, right. uh, potential there. And uh, the tyranny, of course, though, is I... I ran these sums once when I was at uh, Northeast Utility, but even if every car sold in North America were, were an electric vehicle, it still may take 15 years to turn the fleet over. Right, yeah. So, right. Um, again, that's not going to happen real quickly, yeah. um, but it's a, uh, it's a huge opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and obviously, you see all the car makers moving toward um, uh, uh, pushing for more alternative fuel vehicles in their fleets. Right. And, uh, and I think that's going to continue to be a, uh, an, an important trend. You know, home heating, you know, space heating is another big opportunity. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and I think if you can crack the nut on both of those, right. then um, you have a, uh, a really winning combination. What, what I don't know, and this is on the space heating front, is uh, I, I don't have a sense of where space heat, electric space heating technology has gone. Oh, the technology itself. Yeah, from right. the old baseboard resistive heating, because that's very, yeah. very inefficient. I'm sure that there have been advances beyond that, but that's not an area that I've spent a lot of time right. gotcha. thinking about. Yeah. But, but, you know, given that you can make electricity from so many different clean sources, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it becomes the beautiful common denominator fuel, right. uh, I believe. Yeah. And we we always, uh, I guess, think first of transportation when talking about electrification, that it's now the uh, largest source here in the United States of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, yes. is now It's now greater than the production of electricity. Yes. So it, it's the obvious first to think of. It's it's just the hardest one to deal with. It's, it's hard to deal with. Electricity, yeah. it took me a long time to understand this. It's, it's very easy to focus in on stationary sources. Right. Right, because you know where they are, yep. and they're usually regulated by somebody and very easy to get uh, get control of. Mm -hmm. Mobile sources are much more difficult right. um, because it results, it's, it's driven by um, individual decisions, gotcha. you know, unless there were ever a law passed, which would be hard for me to imagine that, uh, 
everyone has to buy an electric vehicle in the next five years, or where we'll stop supporting the distribution of uh, petrol, for right. example. Right. Um, but again, I think the uh, as the technology gets better, as the as the cost of a vehicle uh, continues to decline, electric vehicle continues to decline. And as we start to crack the code around charging infrastructure mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and people get more comfortable with the uh, paradigm difference, because an having owned one, you just think about an electric vehicle very differently than you do a traditional car. How, how so? Well, there are a lot of things people carry in their heads, mm -hmm. uh, was, has been my experience. Uh, for example, people think you need to have 300 miles range. Right. Well, you need to have 300 miles range because most people commute around 40 to 50 miles each day, you know, every yeah. day back and forth. Yeah. And uh, if you do that, then you only need to go to the gas station uh, once, once a week. A week. Okay. What you got to get your head around on an electric car is you refuel it every night mm -hmm. um, or you refuel it while it's at work. Um, so you never go to a gas station and the refueling, the re-energizing process is very benign. Right. Um, it doesn't have the trauma of having to get out of your car and put a put a, mm -hmm. you know, a hose in your car to fill it up and so forth. And that's one of the things that I think people don't get about EVs. Right. Um, they're, uh, um, they have a lot of uh, benefits that you don't think about when you buy them. And uh, the fact that you charge them all the time mm -hmm. is, uh, is a big one. There's a very interesting study by General Motors. Um, this was before they launched the Volt, so probably eight or nine years ago. And they did this great inventory of where cars are. Mm -hmm. And cars are usually parked in a garage, you yeah. know, parked in a driveway, yeah. parked at an office, you know, and occasionally they're parked at a church or parked at a grocery store. And they're driven probably, what, one-tenth, one one-twentieth It's the, it's, it's the, the worst peaking asset you've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're terribly utilized. So the, other, so the other aspect, I think, on transportation um, is what oh. we've seen happening you know, more recently with ride-sharing, mm -hmm. right? That, uh, um, you know, people will get... Uh, more and more comfortable with that mode of getting from point A to point B right. than necessarily having to have their own car right. to do that. Interesting analysis in the Wall Street Journal a year and a half ago, I think, on the economics of owning a car mm -hmm. versus relying on an Uber. Mm -hmm. And if I recall correctly, it said unless you drive about 15,000 miles a year, owning a car more expensive than a $20,000 Camry is a losing proposition. <laughs> because you'd be much better off. Just so in other words, for probably for most people. Yeah, you'd be much better off, you know, uh, relying on an Uber. Wow. Uh, yeah. To get around, but that doesn't solve every problem, right? Yeah. But that solves your local, yeah. you know, kind of local transportation issue. Yeah. So reduces parking pressure. I mean, all kinds of benefits come from mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. When talking about um, electrification and DERs, do the do the two mesh together? Distributed energy resources and electrification, or are they kind of running on separate but parallel paths into the future? You know, that's a good question. I, I, I think they're more, probably more delinked, but I think there's synergies between them. Okay. You know, I think particularly, depending on what happens with cost uh, or price points for things like the, uh, is it the Tesla Powerwall, mm -hmm. you know, residential energy storage and so yeah. forth, you can start to see... Um, you know, a vision where I have solar panels on the roof, I've got a battery uh, storage in my garage, um, I have a car which maybe at some point I can draw from for energy as opposed to right. um, just, you know, use for, for transportation purposes. You can see lots of possibilities there, but I think they're, I think at least at this point in time, I see them more moving on their own paths. Gotcha. 
um, really because the technologies are still really expensive, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So they're, they're not yet for every man. So on DERs, one of the things that some people have said in the past is that it has the potential, distributed energy resources have the potential of pushing utilities into the, the death spiral, where there is a requirement for additional investments in the grid, but fewer customers paying for it. Is that a realistic scenario, or is that just... Well, I think, I think the distribution companies, the utilities distribution companies, um, will reinvent their roles. Yeah. Um, I doubt they go away. Right. Uh, maybe even take the very long, long term there. All right. Someone's going to own the infrastructure. Yeah. You know, someone's going to own the batteries. Someone's going to have to service it. Someone's going to have to maintain it. Yeah. Uh, it'll probably be, uh, in my mind, the the fundamental premise of a utility is that their economies to scale okay. in yeah. uh, in things like distribution and so forth. I doubt. Again, this may be a question of where batteries get to. Mm -hmm. You know, I doubt people will ever completely disconnect from the grid. Right. I think there'll always be some need for that from a, uh, uh, a reliability assurance perspective. Now, the pricing of that may be very different than how we think about it today. Mm -hmm. uh, the services provided uh, over those wires may be very different than how we think of them today. But it's hard for me to envision in a reasonable time frame, next right. 20, 30 years, yeah. that we're going to see people uh, being entirely self-sufficient mm -hmm. uh, on energy production and consumption. Gotcha. I think there'll always be a need for a grid around to provide the reliability that people will okay. demand. Yeah. So let's talk about technologies. You've mentioned technologies at the top. Are there any specific technologies that you're kind of keeping your eye on in addition to uh, storage? Batteries. Batteries. B batteries is the main one. Okay. Um, you know, we uh, in the notes you asked about like superconductivity and mm -hmm. stuff like that, and I think these things, these technologies that will make more efficient use and add more capacity to the transmission grid will be helpful. Right. Over time, I don't spend a lot of time on those. I, I do have um, a bit of a view that uh, some of the investments going into nuclear, mm -hmm. uh, small modular reaction right. reactors, yeah. and so forth. Not an expert on that by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's a very exciting possibility mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as a way of making a uh, reinventing a nuclear industry that um, is ultimately safer, uh, you know, less impactful from an environmental perspective, but still delivers the benefits of you know carbon large scale carbon free generation. Right. right. Um, again, I'm, I can't prognosticate this, but it, it, it again, it's hard for me to believe that a uh, largely decarbonized sector doesn't have some reliance on nuclear mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. generation of some form. So I think that's an area that, uh, that North America needs to continue to invest in. And then speaking of technology, let's, let's branch technology over into the threat environment yeah. that we operate in. And increasingly sophisticated um, advanced persistent threats um, we see a constant evolution of, of more sophisticated players in this field. Yeah. What's beyond the horizon now in that, that, that cyber threat environment that we're operating in? What happens when attacks become AI attacks? You know, that's, you're, you're making my head hurt now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I'm uh, relatively new to the security, uh, the security framework that we, uh, that we operate under, uh, but I'm learning it very quickly. And, um, you know, I think the, uh, the threat is always going to evolve. Yeah. And I think we should always assume that uh, t t tomorrow's attack is going to be more sophisticated than today's. Mm -hmm. 
And our uh, goal always has to be to ensure that we have adequate defenses into our uh, operating uh, environment that, you know, attack and, and to confine the uh, the attack surface to I'm talking from, a, from an enterprise, mm -hmm. from a utility perspective mm -hmm. on kind of the enterprise side of the right. equation. Yeah, away from, um, away from so the that it, So it doesn't get into the operating yeah. uh, technology. You know, and of course, this industry does a lot mm -hmm. to uh, keep those systems isolated and to minimize the access points to the, uh, to the operating systems. But I think, you know, the, if, if you look at the success that, uh, or the success is kind of the wrong word, but if you look at the successful attacks and successful hacking, right, almost all of them come on the enterprise side of the house and almost always come through a phishing email originally. And uh, I'm not sure that I see that acts, that weakness changing. Mm -hmm. Now, the persistency and the aggressiveness and the convincing nature of those attacks may continue to get greater and greater over time. Right. But I think that's probably going to remain our biggest vulnerability is my sense. Mm -hmm. So how, how are you feeling in terms of um, confidence that we're going to be able to continue to, to step up and meet that threat? I, I'd say highly confident with the recognition that you never know what you don't know. Yeah. But the one thing that I've been very impressed by in my nine months here and participating with the ESCC, mm -hmm. the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, yep. and the uh, Department of Homeland Security and DOE around around these issues is the extraordinarily high level of engagement of industry leadership and understanding of the nature of this threat. Um, I mean, I often get asked and I often get this sense that people think that industry is not paying attention or what have you, that these threats are out there, but they're more worried about doing X, Y, Z. And I've been uh, extraordinarily impressed uh, with every CEO that I've met, mm -hmm. you know, whether they're in a large IOU, you know, a public power agency, an RTO, mm -hmm. what have you, of how seriously everybody takes this, uh, takes this issue. And uh, uh, so I've got, I, again, I think the, the, the attacks may change, the attack surface may be different, but I think the level of vigilance that industry has demonstrated and the seriousness with which the very senior leaders in the industry take this, and the dialogue between mm -hmm. our government partners and industry um, gives me confidence that we'll stay as, I don't know if we'll ever be completely ahead of the curve, right? Right, Because we know that curve is changing yeah. on us. Yeah. But I know that this is something that we're gonna stay very much abreast of. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it's a, a unique characteristic of the electric industry that we have a very strong community culture around how the system operates and that transpire that transcends into security mm -hmm. as well um, so that natural collaboration around the vulnerabilities of the system is something that not every industry has and so I think that's a, another kind of positive thing about the electric sector as we look at thinking about these threats gotcha okay just a couple of other questions um, you've mentioned storage do you think there's, there's there's another game changer in addition to storage out there that that we should be paying attention to but that we haven't been? What else is going to be transformative for the uh, for the electricity sector? I'm sure there is, but I'm not smart enough to think of it. Um, <laughs> I mean, storage is the obvious one, right? Right, because everything in this industry has everything that makes this industry complicated mm -hmm. is driven by the fact that uh, you need to instantaneously match supply with demand, right? Um, and and do that and maintain 60 hertz on the system and so yeah. forth. So uh, you know, storage is the is the game changer, right? I think. Um, now, I, I believe that there'll be uh, 
you know, uh, you know, advances in other technologies. Mm -hmm. You know, sh sure, uh, energy management systems for uh, for homes uh, that uh, you know allow homes to be smarter in terms of how energy is used and consumed. Yep. See a lot of possibility there, um, but they have to be, in my mind. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe this is where your artificial intelligence uh, question comes in, right? They, they can't require a lot of user interaction, mm -hmm. right? It has to be done completely in the background because ultimately, although people get wound up about their electric bills, they're really not that high, you know, relative to the value that's provided. Right. And I remember uh, a friend of mine who was uh, uh, a colleague at, uh, at NSTAR mm -hmm. in uh, New England, um, got one of the, uh, oh, I forget it was called a, it's called a TED device or something like that, but it was a home energy management, you okay. know, was monitoring all of his lighting and stuff like that. Yeah. And he realized that what he played around with it for about a week, then he realized that he was spending more time doing that <laughs> than managing his retirement portfolio. And he said, that just doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so I think, uh, I mean, I think the opportunity is clearly there, mm -hmm. uh, but it can't be something that requires an awful lot of day-to-day -day attention because it, there's not enough cost in it to merit that level of, of consumer interaction. Gotcha. Um, but that could certainly have make a difference in terms of flattening loads, mm -hmm. shifting when mm -hmm. loads occur, right. those kinds of things. And, and again, that would, you know, ultimately anything that lowers peak demand, yeah. right, will be helpful. Right. Anything that flattens load will be helpful. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the one interesting thing I always think about when I think about California right now and since we're in Los Angeles, yeah. it's easy to think of California. Yeah. You know, they have this very interesting problem now with all the solar that's produced in uh, shoulder months, mm -hmm. like in April. Right. They have generate more power than they know what to consume, right? Yeah. And yet yeah. you spend all this money trying to reduce peak load, yeah. and here we are. Said we were, we're over but the concept of overgeneration, yeah. right? Yeah. Whoever would have thought yeah. that we would be talking about overgeneration on a sunny day right. in California, yeah. right? So those kinds of things will make uh, will make a difference. Last question. When you start your day, what's the, what are the first sources that you turn to for, for critical information, uh, either, either on the internet or, or elsewhere, that you absolutely have to, have to make sure that you're, you're up to date on and you check in on to, to be able to, to be ready for your day as president of Merck? You, you know, I don't have a go-to source. Uh -huh. um, I, uh, uh, I, I, I will admit that I get most of my information through Facebook. Um, and you know, subscribe to uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, right. Washington Post, uh, yeah. a guy that's just an easy way to consume information, mm -hmm. uh, to consume information for me. And, uh, you know, and the other ones is I spend a lot of time uh, trolling through the, uh, uh, you know, what I think of the, as the top tier management consulting firms. Uh, McKinsey and Company, my former employer, okay. uh, Boston yeah. Consulting Group. Yeah. Um, I subscribe to their energy practices and I find they always have not immediately actionable, but very thought-provoking things mm -hmm. about you know how the world could be. You know, right. they kind of live in a world of possibility, yeah. and uh, and I find that very generative or helps me be generative in my own thinking around what the issues and so mm -hmm. forth are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of our day-to-day -day activity is really focused on stuff that we know. One of the issues that that I challenge myself and challenge my team on is to really start thinking. 10, 15, 20 years down the road, just as we've been talking here, yeah. because many of the challenges that we have, I think will find their solutions in some form of infrastructure. And we all know that energy infrastructure is really 
hard to develop, you know, time consuming, lots of permitting, lots of local impact and so forth. So if we're not keeping our eyes 10, 15 years down the road, we're sunk. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with the uh, CEO of Southern California Edison's point this morning that uh, given enough time and resource, an engineer can solve any problem. The issue is we need to help them to find the problems that need to be solved to make this system work for, for future generations. Mm -hmm. Then we have a really exciting time right now because we clearly are redeveloping the grid. You know, and I don't want to talk about the bulk grid versus mm -hmm. the distribution mm -hmm. grid. The, the grid is getting redeveloped. So we have a chance to do it smartly. Right. Um, build security in uh, to the extent mm -hmm. that it wasn't built in before. And uh, so it's a very exciting time to be to have this job. Jim, thank you very much for joining us for the podcast. Oh, you're welcome, Francis. I enjoyed it. Hi, I'm Julia Muggridge, and I'm the Director of Communications and Marketing at the Canadian Electricity Association. We will be launching on February 28, 2019, the inaugural State of the Canadian Electricity Industry. What we really focused on in the 2019 report was looking even beyond 2019 and what it's going to look like down the line uh, in 2020 and, and, and even further than that. This annual report doesn't just look at 2018. We also are putting forward specific policy asks to the government of Canada, especially as 2019 is a federal election year. And we really focus on enhancing competitiveness, policy options for Canada, and identifying areas for the electricity sector to really thrive. The state of the Canadian electricity industry for 2019 was put together by a number of directors and managers at CEA. Uh, and we, we want to give particular thanks to Francis Bradley, our COO, uh, Chana Pereira, Michael Powell, Justin Crewson, Stephen Cook, Dan Gent, Jay Wilson, Leah Mechalopoulos, and Patrick Farley for producing this report. Each person brought forward their, their subject matter expertise, and it was really a collaborative effort in, in putting the thought into what we wanted to say in 2019. And there was, there was input from all staff at CEA. We were delighted to attend the Globe Capital 2019 event in Toronto, and we launched our State of the Electricity Industry report at this event with a, with a speech from Francis Bradley, and we followed that up with a panel discussion led by Globe and Mail reporter Sean McCarthy and CEOs and executives from our member companies across the country. And we felt that this was a really appropriate launch pad for the outlook. There's no better place to do it than at Globe Capital. When we were putting together the state of the Canadian electricity industry, we wanted to select some very key themes. And this was keeping in mind the federal election in 2019. And we wove sub-themes throughout, throughout the, the report. So some of our themes are competitiveness, investment, and regulatory environments. And, and here we talk about our ranking on the world stage with regards to competitiveness. Canada is actually 14th with regards to competi competitiveness, but we actually identified why this is not necessarily a good thing because some of our counterparts in Europe and the United States are beating us. And this is an important aspect of, of continuing to grow we looked at infrastructure renewal, uh, environmental sustainability, something that we're really proud about for our industry. We talked about electrification, and this is something we're really, really pushing for in terms of government advocacy. We talked about cybersecurity and an ongoing concern that our member companies are experiencing. 
And we talked about the ever-important U.S.-Canada electricity relationship because uh, it's really a north-south relationship as well as east-west that we have to continue to foster with regards to the interconnected North American grid. I have been at the Canadian Electricity Association for eight months, and prior to that I I did work on Parliament Hill, but prior to that, I actually worked for one of our member companies, Toronto Hydro, in the customer operations realm, where we actually, uh, I was part of the team that replaced transformers on people's properties. So I really got to know the the ins and outs of the uh, operations side, and as well as understand the most important thing that our members are concerned about, and that is the role of the customer. Uh, and, and I think as we look... As we look to the future, this is the customer is something we we need to be thinking about, and electricity and electrification is something that is really exciting, and I'm very happy to be part of right now. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor, and invite you to tune in for future discussions. Our next episode will feature a discussion with Gianna Manis, the president and CEO of NMAX Corporation. I hope you'll download it and invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.